Hello, Gina. Hello, Sarah. How are you today? I'm doing well. Good. It is Tuesday, October 20th. And every time I say the date, well, first of all, Tuesday, October 20th of 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, And every time I talk to you and I say the date, I'm always in shock. (laughs) It is true. The time is moving by so quickly and also so slowly. It is a weird uh, phenomenon this year. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So... We haven't spoken in about a week, and um, I know we'll make a decision or we'll talk a little bit more about the focus of the conversation, but if you don't mind, one of the things that I did want to do right off the bat is the last time we spoke, I I was talking a little bit about this document that existed in a... um, a museum of African artifacts, African-American artifacts. And I was unsure about the date uh, that the document was referencing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was trying to make the point that while we all think of 1619 as a a significant date, and and it is because it is the date that according to history, that the first uh, uh, slaves of African descent were brought to the United States. the date, however, on the document I was referencing was actually 1595. And in this, what this document shows is that this is the earliest known baptism of a black person uh, that took place in St. Augustine, Florida in 1595. Um, and the collection also includes a marriage certificate for a black couple from 1598. So I just wanted to get those dates straight mm-hmm. since I was so fuzzy last time. <laughs> great. Great. Thank you for the clarity. Yeah. Yeah. So what are we going to be talking about today, Sarah? What catch? <laughs> that is a great question. And I was just uh, trying to decide that myself. Um, so just by way of recap, we started with episode double zero, Um, introducing ourselves and talking about kind of our own history, just a mini introduction to each of our, of our lives. Uh, And then we dug into 2020, a year like no other, and um, spent a couple of episodes kind of digesting that. We have spent a couple of episodes on education. We've spent an episode on racism. Um, And I don't have a strong leaning for today. Do you? Well, you know, um, because we, I I would say one of the things that we really, as we were talking about education last time, the last couple of times, what we were really starting to talk a little bit about, um, it's history. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask if you thought this would be a good time for me to share a little perspective, uh, on, um, the whole idea of sort of the, the commonalities and the differences between the experience of a person who is, who is the descendant of slaves in the Caribbean versus sort of the African-American experience. I would love to hear that perspective. <laughs> yeah. So and this is going to be like a quick and dirty history for, any, for any, those of you who are listening. You know, this is going to strictly be sort of like the the research of one person and her and her perspective. But it is an interesting thing to have to have lived. Um, and so, you know, you certainly know that um, 
the same European powers that um, would have brought slaves to North America would have also brought slaves to the Caribbean and to South America. Um, basically, you've probably heard about the triangular trade where the, the, the gist of it, very rough, is that you know slaves were brought from the West Coast of Africa, typically to the Caribbean, then from the Caribbean, they were brought to, um, from, and then from the Caribbean, in the Caribbean, the whole idea is that they were supposedly sort of trained and prepared for a life of servitude working on the sugar plantations. And then the, the, the result of their labor, that sugar, was then used basically as a currency, if you would, as, you know, a primary um, uh, commodity for trading. That was the power, it was that sugar, that, that, that black, that, you know, the, 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 the result of their work. And then that sugar was then transported and, tra and traded with other countries, but transported, let's say, to, back to England where then it was traded for other kinds of, of, go of goods and services. And then that's how they were able to finance the next voyage where the ship would then go back to Africa, uh, maybe trading some things along the way or whatever. And then here we go again, we just continue the cycle. So that was sort of the general idea of how those slaves got to Africa, to the Caribbean, and, and then why so many of the Caribbean islands were colonies of England and of course of France and of course of Spain and also mm -hmm. the the, um, the Netherlands and Denmark. So not just not just England, um, but it's really interesting because um, so you had this unique experience in the Caribbean if you were the, if you were a slave and the descendant of a slave because what was different or what I have observed is one of the biggest differences is that slaves in in the Caribbean and the English slaves were educated. So the, mm. this whole notion, I think, is, there are two things that are interesting. One is that slaves were educated and it was probably because um, there wasn't as much of a risk that, um, the, that the population was so large that maybe it could take over or something like that. I mean, sure, there were rebellions along the way, but it was pretty clear that, you know, on these smaller islands, you had a little bit more opportunity to control what was going on that you might have had in a large um, country like the United States. So I don't know if that accounts for the difference between why slaves in the Caribbean, English slaves were educated, whereas when we got to North America, the perspective on it was so completely different and the handling of it was so completely different. So that's one thing. And then the second thing I'll mention uh, by way of a joke and then I'll, I'll stop. But the second thing that is really interesting and intriguing to me and has always been is that if you talk to black people in the Caribbean and if you talk to black people in the United States, there's one thing that for sure that we have in common, which is that none of us are very big on swimming. And so there's mm -hmm. always this joke that we have where we say, you know, and it's really based in reality. Slaves were not taught to swim, however. <laughs> they weren't taught to swim in the Caribbean because that was sort of like um, an opportunity to escape um, and that sort of thing. So whether those ideas that I have about that are 100% accurate, they certainly are the stories and the perceptions that have been passed down um, in, my, you know, in, in, the, in the tradition of why, why are we the way we are? And then there are some differences with the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. Yes, very interesting, very interesting thoughts. So one thing that I want to um, just clarify, I, um, 
for any younger listeners who may not have the history or older listeners who may not have the history, when you were talking about they, uh, you know, t- ma- making money basically off of the sugar and then f- using that to finance the next voyage, they being the slave owners or the capturers of slaves, not ever being the slaves themselves. Clearly the slaves themselves were not uh, being paid. You're absolutely right. And I appreciate your asking that clarifying question. Everything that I was talking about where I'm talking about the control of the situation or the flow of the money or the trading or the commercial activity, I'm talking about the slave owners. Mm -hmm. And in our case, I'm talking about the English, but the French, the Spanish, the Dutch and Mm -hmm. the Danes did those same things in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So a couple of interesting things that I'm just making connections as you're speaking. Um, When you think about the colonization of Africa, uh, my husband who migrated here to the U.S. from Nigeria, immigrated, and uh, his parents grew up and um, continue to live, his larger family continue to live in Nigeria. And his parents were um, educated by the English in Nigeria, and then they also traveled to England for their kind of collegiate studies. And um, I just think that it's very interesting that in both cases where they had colonized, um, England had colonized Nigeria and, and also in the Caribbean, that they were intent on education. Um, I wonder if that, I, this is not my historical area of expertise, and so I welcome the correction, um, but I wonder if it has to do with somewhat of the moral conscience of them, their, the country as a whole, uh, the, I don't know, emphasis on, on uh, Christianity, Christian education, spreading religion, but also with that, um, their value of education. Uh, I think in the United States, it was less about spreading culture and more about making money. Um, mm-hmm. And so I could see t- twofold, two reasons why American slaveholders would not have educated their slaves. One is that it wasn't part of their money-making scheme. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, there, was, there is uh, some risk uh, assumed in educating the people that you're trying to keep um, enslaved. Yeah. And, you know, but that and so what you just said certainly resonates in terms of logic. Right. However, the the one crack in that that I've never been able to reconcile in that point of view, which I have also explored for myself, is it's, it's the same English people who came to United who came to the, to North America, uh, I, you know, the 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 the, the um, with the same religious background mm. when they came and landed on Plymouth Rock and when they, you know, it's a lot of these are the, the, the same people, the, the one in terms of the religion. However, however, um, there is a difference. Um, the difference, but the, the difference is somewhat upside down because if you think about the folks that came to the United States at North America um, and um, would have been those first settlers they tended to have not been rich people or well-endowed people. They tended to have been people who either, as you say, were seeking some kind of a religious um, 
freedom and escape and wanted to be able to practice their puritanical ideals or what have you. Um, and they brought those ideas with them and sort of more simple way of living uh, and thought that, you know, very rugged and they thought they could do it. Um, by contrast, if you think about it, a lot of the folks that would have then been also English, but in the Caribbean, they tended to be, um, and they came with some money because they came for the express purpose of establishing these commercial entities with these slaves once they figured out that this was a, you know, a way to make some relatively quick money. And so we had a lot of descendants of noble people who, who ended up sort of running things in the Caribbean. And so those, so it's kind of, and of course there would have been some that would also have been religious, but the religion part of it, um, I don't know. It's just very muddy because mm -hmm. clearly regardless of the religion, people were still able to behave in ways where they, they thought of this other group of people as not human and, mm -hmm. and not, you know, so complicated. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's still true today in a less mm -hmm. glaring way. So I, I can be someone who is very devout in my faith and very, mm -hmm. like, very upholding of Christian morals and ideals or very upholding, uh, you know, I haven't, I, I have less familiarity with Muslim slaveholders, so I won't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. comment on other religions and, and their um, kind of moral uh, interpretation of slavery. Um, but certainly it's been true in the United States, that one can believe that they are a heartfelt follower of Jesus Christ and still have views that um, are self-serving and and keep others down. Now, of course, uh, it, if you, you know Christian teaching, it is <laughs> the opposite. It is anti-Christian. It is, it is the opposite of what Jesus himself teaches in terms of how we love and care for those around us. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, uh, the relationship between religion and slavery uh, is something we could explore in a whole another topic. <laughs> yeah, it's very complicated. And the truth is, there's no simple answer to any of this. But those, you know, the, the, the differences in the experience are very interesting. And so, so there's that story that I told before and all the things that we just explored. And then there's a whole piece about when when you are a, a descendant of a slave in the Caribbean and you were educated and somehow from, for, for a few generations since slavery, the only thing that your, your family and your parents and the people around you have ever talked about was education. It was all they ever mm -hmm. talked about. It was the most important thing. It was a given that you would be striving to excel and all of that, which would have been my experience. Mm -hmm. And then when I came to the United States, you know, I was already um, 20 years old when I first came to the United States. But when I came to the United States, I recognized very quickly that that difference in the education that was deprived for the, for the slaves, that, that they did not get it as a group. And then descendants of, of, for generations didn't have access to that education meant that they didn't necessarily understand the value of it, of the education in the same way. Mm -hmm. It was not a, um, a common, it wasn't, it wasn't as well established that this was the, the way to, to, to success or that you would get ahead. Mm -hmm. Some people clearly understood that, mm -hmm. but some others either it was so far beyond the realm of possibility that they probably just didn't invest the energy to think about it. And so I came to the United States with that other experience and it was really shocking to understand that frankly, this was probably the worst of, of the impact of slavery. 
mm-hmm. was not providing that opportunity for education. Mm-hmm. That's just so many interesting things. Um, I want to go back to one of the things you said earlier, and then I'm going to tie it back together. You had mentioned um, growing up having not learned to swim. And one of the things that has been interesting for me uh, as I have navigated my husband's culture of origin um, have been, has been to learn about the similarities between uh, Nigerian culture specifically and Black American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and now being exposed to, you know, Caribbean culture. Um, so his, his family, despite growing up in Lagos, the major coastal city in, in Africa, um, he also didn't learn how to swim. And they very much have had, his family has had the stance of the ocean is something to be revered and to be feared. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of power there. It's not mm-hmm. to go swimming. <laughs> Right. And so despite access to the water, especially if you were upper class where you could afford to not, you know, you didn't have to be a fisherman or, you know, anything like that. You didn't have to make your living on the water. There was not a value placed on learning how to swim or being in the water. Um, So that's that's something that's interesting. Um, Also, in Nigeria, they boil peanuts and and loved and i've and i've found that that's something that's uh more regional here in the united states in the south um, yes and so just so many many interesting things that i feel like the cultural elements of african culture have m- been maintained in some sense through the generations mm-hmm. uh some of those pieces uh, i find intriguing Coming back around to the education piece and value of education, um, I'm just going to make some remarks and share what's going through my mind, um, may or may not be accurate uh, reflections. Uh, My husband's family is, they are more well off than the average family and Mm -hmm. also place a heavy, heavy emphasis on education. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know if that's culturally relevant across all class groups in Nigeria, but I do know that that does tend to be the same. um, I find that as a common thread amongst all of the immigrant families that I know. There seems Mm -hmm. to be a heavy emphasis placed on education, especially in immigrant families. And I think it's also true that most of the time, no matter whether an immigrant here in the United States is is well off or is poor in their country of origin, a lot of times they were the more well off of their peers. Um, they had to obviously have the resources to be able to make the journey and, and get here. And maybe they spent all that they had and maybe they're not not well off here, but were in their in their country of origin. And um So what I'm wondering is whether that understanding of how education can help you excel comes from having already succeeded at some point in your family's history. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And I make that remark because then there are also, of course, white Americans who uh, were poor, or, you know, if you think about those coming here, um, from, you know, tra- traveling from across the ocean, getting here, and then acro- over the generations, migrating west, uh, dealing with 
you know, very uh, challenging weather, challenging terrain, um, lack of technology, uh, building log cabins and traveling in, in uh, wagons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, that type mm-hmm. of existence was very survival focused. And so it wasn't mm-hmm. until there was a more populated um, uh, you know, population um, to be able to settle and build schools and mm-hmm. and experience the success of that, that then I think that communities began to then value that. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. even in my own family, if I go back and look at the education levels of each generation before me, where the, the um, my family of origin was by no means wealthy, um, and I would say that education wasn't necessarily something that was um, was expected in the same way that my husband's family expected it of him. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that's a very long way around to say, I don't know if that's a cultural reflection or if it has to do with class or being immigrants or, you know, there are so many factors mm-hmm. that I suppose could influence that value of education. Yeah, I do know for sure that um, if I think about it, at least from the Caribbean perspective, also as a colony, I do think that I mentioned this whole education thing and and I, I don't I can't speak for Africa, obviously. But what I can say is that the English model, because, of course, that's different than in North America, because in North America, it wasn't the English. After a while, it was the Americans. Right. But the English who have been the colonists, they had a model of operating. And the model of operating was very clear. You could tell who were the noble people and the descendants of you know, royalty or these peer uh, groups where they had, they were landowners and had money. They behaved a certain way, they dressed a certain way, and they were highly visible mm-hmm. because that was how they showed their superiority. You know, They were very much inclined to show their wealth whether it was in the design of their plantation building or whatever, you know, symbol of that wealth. And so because they were also educating the the slaves and because they were physically closer, because, you know, they would sort of divvy up the land. So any family that was a slaveholding family, they only interacted with, I don't know, their slave, you know, primarily with their slaves and their land and their people. So you're relatively close. You could see these people. Um, and I think that that was part of how people learned the value of this education thing and this reading thing um, and how, you know, you could aspire to to wear finer clothing and, and certain things. It was much more, it appears to me that those things were more visible if in, in that situation, certainly in the Caribbean, than it would have been in um, in the United States on these big plantations with much larger sizes and um, the English model that I just described was not existing in the same way. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. It is interesting. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things that I'm really intrigued by, and maybe we can delve into this in another topic, is just the language that we use. Um, so along with education and history, the language that we use to talk about these things um, so I'm going to put a pin in that for a future conversation. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, we started, I started this part of the conversation by sort of talking about, 
uh, the Caribbean experience versus the experience in North America. The only other thing I wanted to say before we kind of, you know, either wrap up or transition, Mm -hmm. you know, preparing for our next conversation is that um, the, it's then now really fascinating when we talk about things like um, race and immigrants and all of that. I came to the United States thinking that uh, African-Americans would see me as somebody who was just like them because we'd had this shared experience of um, uh, slavery and you know racism. And, and if, you're, if I'm walking down the street, nobody knows where I'm from. You know, I just look like everybody else. Uh, but what I discovered was that one of the things that I had to learn was how to adapt to African-American expectations so that I could fit in, not just in the larger society, but in the African-American community, because they're very, very specific norms that were very different than the norms that I would have experienced in my, where I, where I spend most of my formative years. And so we can talk about this at some other point, but, but the reason I'm mentioning it now, mentioning it now or thinking about it now is I realized that in this year of 2020, um, that there are some, um, I've, I've looked at myself and I've realized there's some things about me that even after all these years, I'm still very much a Caribbean person mm-hmm. with my point of view. It's mm-hmm. so interesting. Yeah, really interesting. I love it. I would love to dig, uh, dig more into that topic. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's something that we can talk about in our next conversation um, uh, but I'm sure we'll talk between then and now. And I have really enjoyed yet another of these great conversations with you, Sarah. Likewise, Gina. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you.